If you have a Bible, please get it out with us. We have been walking through the Gospel of Mark for months now. And we enter into a difficult passage, difficult passage, um, but it seems to connect well with the video that we watched about Nigeria. It's rough in Nigeria, but it is indicative of the state of the world, the state of things, not just physical, but spiritual. And so it's important that we head into this text today. I will read it and then we will pray because we need the Lord today. Our, cha- our, verse, our chapter is Mark 9, verses 38 through 50. Mark 9, verses 38 through 50. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if, he, if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it has lost, if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy Merciful Father, we ask for your mercy right now. We are not worthy of your care. We have sinned so many times this week, even today. We've rejected you for things that are good, but we have made them into God things. And so we need your mercy now to see. In so many ways, we are still blind. We are still learning to hear, learning to know. And so come to us by your Holy Spirit and allow us to grow to grow as we understand who you are and believe in you. There is nothing more consequential, more important than this very thing, see and trust and know Jesus Christ. So through this text, may we do that by your mercy. Amen. So it was 1991. And Jessica, now my wife, not at the time, she was with her family and they had just celebrated her sister's 13th birthday the day before. And so her sister had woken up that next morning after her birthday and she lit the candle in her room that her friend had given her for her birthday. 
And she was basking in the sweet sounds of Michael Bolton playing on her brand new CD player. Hot. Here's Michael. Later that morning, she came down to have breakfast with her mom and her sister. And as they were sitting there, they, they sensed something was strange, something amiss. They smelled something burning. Her mom jumped up, checked the stove. She checked the dryer. She checked the dishwasher. Nothing. And then as Jessica retells the story, she recounts it. She says that she looked across the table at her sister and saw her sister's eyes get very big. And then she jumped up, raced upstairs with Jessica following. Where is she going? When they arrived at the closed door of her sister's room, there was smoke billowing across the hallway ceiling, around the edges of the door. Without thinking at all, her sister grabbed the handle, which you're not supposed to do, kids, and threw the door open, only to see the room engulfed in fire and black smoke. And then before Jessica could stop her, her sister flung herself into her bedroom and was instantly enveloped by the black smoke. And then three seconds later, Jessica saw her sister leap from the smoke, cradling her new baby, her brand new CD player with that sweet Michael Bolton CD. Now, everyone, of course, got out safely. I wouldn't tell the story otherwise, <laughs> including the animals. But this, the house, of course, sustained tons of damage. There was smoke and water from the, there was smoke damage and water damage from the department, fire department's hoses. And so it is a birthday their family will never forget. But was it also scary and life-threatening? For sure. Fire Fire is dangerous. Fire is dangerous. The Christian scriptures claim this almost hard to believe thing. That our world is not random, but that it was created. It was created by an omnipotent, sovereign, and loving God. And the scriptures say, the Christian scriptures say, that the pinnacle of his creation was humanity, was men and women and children. But once they were created, something went wrong. Humans rejected God's sovereignty and his love. And this sin, this rejection of God, gave birth to death and allowed evil into the world. And now, as we saw on that video from Nigeria, the world is not how it should be. It is broken, hurting. But as you go along in the story of the gospel, in the story of the Christian scriptures, you understand that this is not the final thing. The final story, the end, the conclusion, is one of both redemption and justice. Redemption and justice. God will, on the one hand, write what has been wrong. He will crush all evil and write all injustices but he will also redeem and restore. He will bring his people to himself 
to flourish and experience bliss forever and ever. God will redeem and restore, but he will also execute his righteous justice. So if you didn't hear me closely enough, humans will go one of two places. What will happen to the pinnacle of his creation is that men and women will go either to the fire or they will escape the fire. Either they will escape the fire or the fire will consume them. I do not mean that figuratively. I mean that literally. This topic is not going to come up at your staff meeting tomorrow. You won't hear it discussed in the classroom or at the barber shop or in the grocery store. I doubt it will come up at your play date or when you're getting your teeth cleaned. But in this room, in this place, in this time, with this text in front of us, we must talk about it. There is a fire. Will we escape it and enter eternal bliss? Or will be consumed? Will we be consumed by it forever? First point this morning. In. That's it. That's the whole point. In. Look at your Bibles with me. Look at the scriptures with me. First, Mark 9:38. Mark 9:38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So if you've read the Gospel of Mark, if you've been with us, you know that Jesus has just pretty much right before this revealed his purpose on earth. His purpose was to be killed and then to rise again. And then he bids his disciples to come with him, to journey with him, not just for the good things, but all the way to the cross. But the disciples are not getting it, are they? They are not getting it. Like last year when I tried to go skiing for the very first time in the Swiss Alps, they are awkward and dense and very dangerous. This first passage has our disciples making a wrong assumption about a man doing miracles in Jesus' name. They are disturbed by him and what he's doing and decide to take matters in their own hands to stop him. You must stop doing miracles in Jesus' name. And after they confront the man, they come running to Jesus to tell him what they had tried to do. Teacher, look, we tried to stop this man doing this very bad thing. Years ago, we took my wife, she gets a lot of stories this morning. My wife took our yellow lab for a walk. Our yellow lab, his name was Toby. And she was letting him run around a baseball field. It was just her and Toby. The next thing she knew, this very sweet but very dumb animal had managed to capture a groundhog in his, in his mouth by the head and then kill it. I will not go through the gory details. Well, he kills this animal like an animal does and then decides that he is going to present this groundhog to my wife. And so with this groundhog in his mouth, he runs up to her to show her what he had done. Look, mommy, a present for you. The disciples might as well have brought Jesus a dead groundhog. 
Mark 9, 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. What had the disciples missed? What had they missed? What had they done wrong? Something inside of their hearts. Look back at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. He was not following us. As we said last week, the disciples felt tremendous pride at being selected by Rabbi Jesus. And it was perfectly reasonable to feel joy and dignity in this. It was a very, very cool thing. But there is a difference between dignity and pride. The disciples have taken this good thing, getting to follow Jesus, getting to do miracles with him and in his name, and they have made it about themselves. It is no longer about who Jesus is, but who they are. They are in the clique, or I think in the French it's clique, the club. And so now they are powerful, important, worthy. This man who's doing miracles in Jesus' name is encroaching on their territory. He is not following us. And Jesus says to this, friends, my disciples, power is not found in you or in our club. The power is found in me. When you trust me, you will do great things. They should have learned this lesson, but they didn't. Just a few passages before this, the disciples tried to cast out a demon-possessed boy, a very sick child. But as, as much as they tried, over and over again, they were unsuccessful. And now, a man who had almost zero contact with Jesus is able to perform the same miracle in his name. What is the difference? This man, unknown to us, we do not know his name, understands that his power to heal is derived, is received from, gotten from, entirely from Jesus Christ. He understands that without the grace of Jesus, he has no chance of healing anyone. Contrast that with the disciples. They tried to heal that boy entirely by their own power. We learned at the end of that passage that they did not even pray. We cannot miss this point. This is the difference between belief and unbelief. Unbelief says, it is what I do that matters. It is my good works, my morals, my successes. That is what earns me a way in this world. It earns me my place before God. But the gospel flips that on its head, doesn't it? Belief in Jesus Christ is dependent on mercy and grace. It says, I have nothing on my own. Everything that I have is his. Everything I do is by his grace. I linked to a video this week from famous, maybe infamous actor named Shay LaBeouf. 
I don't know him or his journey. I know he's had a rough life. But it sounds like he has understood and now believes the gospel. He said this, It was seeing other people who would sin beyond anything I could conceptualize, also being found in Christ, that made me feel like, okay, that gives me hope. The gospel gave me this invite just to let go. I came from the school of God helps those who help themselves, but that is not what I have found. God comes to those who ask. God comes to those who ask. Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak the evil of me, to speak evil of me. What has this man done? We don't know his name. We will know it in heaven because he has believed in Jesus Christ. He has humbled himself. He has believed and trusted him and now he is in, fully in, for the one who is not against us is for us. The one who is not against us is for us. Friends, you cannot be for Jesus and against him at the same time. You cannot be a follower and denier simultaneously. You cannot follow him in some areas of your life and not other areas. You cannot divide yourself in two. You must choose him or deny him. Not to decide is to decide. Will you go in? Will you humble yourself and be let into the kingdom of Christ? Now he does say this thing at the very end of this passage, Mark 9, 41. It is not just simply saying these words with your lips. I believe in Jesus. You must say the words with your life for the rest of your life. It is what we call repentance. And so Jesus says in Mark 9, 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. In other words, it is not just that you believe, but that there is fruit that comes out of your belief. You live a life in response to the grace of Christ. So on the one hand, it does not matter how much you do for Jesus. What matters is what you do with what you have. Do you have a drilling company that can go dig drill wells in Africa? Do it. Or do you have only a single cup of water to give to a thirsty child? What matters is not your perfection. It is not how many gifts you have. What matters is your heart. Your heart. Are you a person who is amazed by grace? Do you live with eternity in mind? Is your heart growing in love for people? Are you more quickly able to forgive those who have sinned against you? Friends, if you humbly believe and if your life reflects your belief, you are in. You are in. But then Jesus takes this hard turn. You are, if you are not in, you are out. If you are not in, you are out. Mark 9, 42. 
whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a grit millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Quickly, who are these little ones that he's talking about? He's not just talking about children. He is talking about those who believe. Everyone who believes in Jesus, that who is who he is talking about. Mark 9, 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Do not mess with my children. Do not mess with those who believe in me. Jesus looks at the disciples and says, you are sinning against this man. You are trying to keep him from my grace. How? When the disciples tried to stop the man from doing Jesus' miracles in Jesus' name, they were not being selfless or cautious. What was really happening is that pride was welling up in their hearts overflowing into judgment and anger. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus because you do not follow us. But why is this important? This is important because of what they have done and why Jesus' response to this was so harsh. The disciples were not giving this man the gospel, but legalism. They were not preaching to him grace, but works. They were essentially saying to this man, you aren't doing it right. You have to do it like us. You have to follow us. You have to put in your dues, and then you get to be part of the kingdom. This is exactly what the, what the Apostle Paul said to the Galatian church. He saw in the church that they had retreated from the gospel back to works righteousness. They were people who said, yes, Jesus, we love Jesus, but also you need to get circumcised. Yes, Jesus, but also works of the flesh. And Paul rightly says to them, that is no gospel. Galatians 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. For Paul and for Jesus, there is nothing worse than that to subvert, to turn the gospel upside down. To preach legalism, works righteousness, instead of the gospel, is like giving someone cardboard instead of food, engine oil instead of water, poison instead of an antidote. And it is so evil and so heinous that Jesus says you would be better off drowning in the ocean with a weight strapped to your neck. And so Jesus is setting up this stark and scary contrast between those who believe and those who do not. Between those who trust Christ humbly and those who do not. Between those who are leading people to Christ by grace, simply by saying, I am a beggar, 
I want to show you where the food is. If that is your life, then you are in. But if you arrogantly reject Christ and you lead people away from him, you are out. The problem, though, friends, is that you are either in or out forever. Mark 9, 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Our whole passage has been leading to this, building up to this. This is actually the first time Jesus talks about hell in Mark's gospel. But now he must. He must explain what is going on in the world. What happens when all things come to a culmination. When this mortal life ends and when the immortal life begins, either in heaven or with God, either in hell or without him. Listen, there is no more controversial or difficult or scary doctrine than the Christian doctrine of hell. But Jesus talks about it more than any other Old Testament or New Testament author. He brings it up over and over, over and over. He tries to get our attention, not to scare us straight, not to force us to do what he wants. He tells us, he warns us, because hell is real and it is permanent. What is hell like? We do not know, not for sure. Is it literal fire? Possibly. But maybe it is worse. Hell is at the very least a place without God, at least the grace and mercy and love of God. A place without Christ. A place without the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's very clear from this text that hell will be like fire. Even if it's not literal, hell will be like fire. Fire burns, warps, degrades, disintegrates. Without the grace of God, the sins that plague you, the brokenness that tortures you, will go unchecked, unstopped, off into eternity. Your anger, your selfishness, your greed, your envy, your guilt, and so on will be multiplied off forever. Hell is fire. And so Jesus uses a series of hyperbolic statements to explain the seriousness of hell. What it will mean. Why we must avoid it. Friends, we must put as much distance between us and sin as possible. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. What's his point? What is he saying? That you should gouge your eyes out and cut your feet and hands off? No. He's saying that we must not allow sin to fester. We must never allow it to grip our hearts. Sin is like fire in your living room. You would not simply sit there and watch it burn and say, that's not a big deal. The fire is 
over there. It's pretty small right now. Nothing bad will happen. Allowing sin into your life is like that. Unless you quickly move to put it out, it will consume you. Hear these words from Tim Keller. There can be no compromises. It, sin, must not be tolerated. It can't be allowed to smolder. It can't be confined to a corner. It will engulf you eventually, which is hell. We must confess sin and change and do anything to put it out for the fire of sin's misery could eventually envelop us and go on forever. Sin never stays in its place. It always leads to hell, first in this life and then in the next. Or listen to how the old Puritan author put it. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. How do you do it? How do you kill sin? Kill sin at its root first. Kill sin at its root. Jesus, again, is not saying that you should literally cut off your hands or feet or gouge out your eyes. What he is saying is that sin is so serious that you must take it seriously. You may have to give up things that you enjoy to keep sin from coming in. Friends, lock down your tech. Stay away from tempting people or images. Take care when consuming alcohol. What is that thing, that fire in your living room that you must put out? Kill sin at its root. Kill sin by meeting with other Christians. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is he saying? The end is coming. The end is coming. Jonathan Edwards says that we are living on the precipice of eternity. Do not act like we are not. Come to church. Attend a life group. Send your kids to youth group. Confess your sins together. Be open and honest. Friends, we don't meet together to check a box. I'm not up here every Sunday going, who's here and who's not? I'm here praying that you will come. That you will meet to keep sin at bay. Kill sin at its root. Kill sin by meeting together. Kill sin by telling others about Jesus. Now, of course, it is vital for the salvation of our neighbors that you tell them the gospel, that you speak the words of the gospel. The words of the gospel are simple. Man, that God has created everything. That Man has sinned against God. That Jesus has come and he has given his life as we were meant to live it. He's died for us forever and ever. And he has risen to new life. Now we can live with him. Those are the words of the gospel. You say it the way you want to, but you must say it. Tell others about Jesus. Tell them from the bottom of your heart. Now when we do that, We kill sin. We kill sin in our own hearts. Because when we do that, it is like smelling salt to our soul. It keeps us awake. It keeps us committed. Do not forget who you are. 
Do not forget what is coming. Kill sin at its root. Kill sin by meeting together. Kill sin by telling others about Jesus. And finally this morning, kill sin by reveling in the grace of Jesus Christ. Verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That is heavy. Jesus is saying that hell is everlasting. Why is it everlasting? It lasts forever and ever because of the everlasting effects of our sin. Our sin deserves everlasting punishment. But I want you to quickly understand what that means. That when this man that we've been following, we've been listening to, that we've been getting close to, when this man goes to the cross, what he will take on is hell. When Jesus goes to the cross, he will experience the infinite pain of hell on the cross for us. Literally, figuratively, for three hours, Jesus took on all of the punishment we deserved to spare us from an eternity in hell. That is grace. That we could not save ourselves, but that he did. He saved us. It was him. And so now when we are tempted, when sin enters our life, when we fail, we look to Jesus. We revel in his grace. The one who took on hell for us can help us to withstand anything in this life and he will keep us and he will protect us and he will bring us home. Hebrews 12, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, we are either out or we are in. By his grace, receive him and go into him. Let's pray. Let's just take a few moments in the silence to reflect on the scripture, to hear the voice of God in our minds and our hearts. with our eyes closed, with our heads bowed. Now is your opportunity to turn to him, to trust in Jesus Christ. Faith is not blind. 
There is truth before you right now that Jesus Christ lived. He died, he rose again, and now lives forever and ever. And so he is the one that you trust on. It is a leap. To have faith means to put your weight onto something. Something that you not, do not know if he will hold you up. But I can say that Jesus will hold you up. And so right now in this silence, pray. Even with the simplest of words, say with your heart, with your mind, with your life, that I trust you. That though I am a sinner, though I have rejected you thoroughly, though I am dead in my sins, now I know that you are real. That you have given your life for me on the cross. And I trust that it is enough. I cannot help myself. You must help me. You must save me. God, I pray this for this church. I pray this doctrine for this church. This is why we are here. We're here to glory in Christ, but also to warn people from hell. And so I pray that this church is a church that warns that joyfully shares Jesus, but warns against what is coming. And I pray that for the world. As I see those pictures and those prayers from Nigeria, we ask that you would end our suffering, that you would come quickly, God, to you be the glory forever and ever through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.